Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton's COVID caseload is now increased by 17, and there's also a concern about enforcement of some of the laws in place. We're going to talk with Paul Johnson about that. We are doing our weekly discussion with employment lawyer Andrew Goldberg on the podcast today, too, concerns about COVID-19 and about wrongful dismissal. And should police be ticketing homeless and vulnerable? Some local groups have got a concern about the policy. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Hamilton's COVID-19 caseload has now increased uh, by 17. A new outbreak at a care home here in town. And uh, a lot of calls right now for, uh, uh, well, city staff in this particular situation to start easing some of the restrictions that have been put in place. Paul Johnson is the uh, director of the Emergency Operations Center for this uh, project here in the city of Hamilton. He joins us on The Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks very much. Uh, quick programming note. I should mention, by the way, your weekly town hall is tonight, and we'll have, carry that on CHML. I just want to give our listeners a heads up about that because there's always some information that's uh, forthcoming about that. Uh, I want to ask you where we stand in this right now. And I'm going to start it off with an email, and this is probably very similar to about 100 emails you get every hour, Paul. It says, uh, hey, Bill, I think it's time to open the walkways by the lake, Pier 4 walkway. There is no problem with social distancing there. People get out of the house. They need to enjoy nature. They're getting cooped up with a little bit of cabin fever. This is from our friend Rudy, of course, our, one of our listeners here on the show. Uh, and, and I know you getting these all the time. What's the status right now? Because I know you talked the other day, Paul, about maybe we should have that discussion. But uh, I, I'm getting the sense that we're not really there yet. No, we're not there yet. The advice has not changed uh, from our, our medical professionals, both at the federal, provincial, and local level. Uh, it's stay at home. Uh, and then if you have to go out, stay close to home. And so by, uh, you know, suggesting we might open uh, amenities that encourages people to go to them, uh, and and that's not where we're at yet. And so I, I get it. People want to get out, uh, although maybe not the last couple of days where it's been like minus two and snowing. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, it's coming. And, and I, the other piece is, is it's going to come that we will, uh, you know, that, that the province and, and then local municipalities will start to have these conversations. But we are we are not there yet. We still have increasing cases, although we're very pleased to see that that rate has slowed. Uh, we certainly have not seen the massive surge that uh, would have been the worst case scenario. We haven't seen it provincially. We haven't really seen it nationally, and we certainly haven't seen it locally. And those are all positive signs that say now we can start to to think about those next steps. But uh, you know, I understand people want to get out and use certain amenities, but uh, we're following uh, the advice which is working in Hamilton, and that's the other side. Is this is not meant to be a punitive measure it's actually meant to help us in terms of managing this outbreak uh, a, a virus in the community and, uh, and and we're just not there yet to say how we're going to start to get out of uh, the, the the more restrictive constraints that we're, we're under at the moment so I, you know certainly people fresh air is important but it's fresh air in a very local context it's not about traveling to a destination and and having uh, you know an enjoyment of a of a park or a trail that we, we used to. It's it's walk around your neighborhood. And, and I get some people have said to me, well, that's, that's inequitable because some people have a park right next to them. I happen to be one of those folks that's lucky enough to have Valley Park right near where I live. Um, I, I get it, but this isn't, that's not where we are at the moment. And the other piece is, is in relative terms, these very restrictive measures, when we look back on this, will have been for a fairly short period of time. Uh, this is not something where we expect these restrictive measures to go on for another six, eight, ten months. 
Uh, we're going to get out of this at some point and have more access to those amenities, but it is not yet. And we won't do it until there's strong evidence that the time is, is right to do it. Well, even yesterday uh, when the Premier did his daily briefing, uh, and of course he was asked the very same question. And I think the quote was, he says, it's easy to say open, open, open until we get the second wave and it bites you in the backside. Uh, and I think we need a reality check here, don't we, Paul? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, the weather's getting nicer and we're hearing that we're starting to, to level off that curve, so maybe this is time to do this. But then I talked to healthcare officials, and now you do this on a daily basis, at St. Joseph's and at Hamilton Health Sciences, and they're telling me that they're still clearing beds out of there because they're anticipating another wave. Uh, so, the, you know, it's not that they don't, so they know something we don't know. They're just trying to say, this is not over yet. Right. Uh, you know, there, we haven't killed off this virus. Uh, and so, you know, what's keeping those numbers low is, in fact, the, the, the isolation and, the, and certainly when people do go out, uh, the very strict uh, social distancing that's, that's in place. Uh, that's what's happening. Uh, we don't have enough people that have had it and are, um, you know, hopefully, although there's no definitive, but hopefully uh, immune to it. We don't have enough of that herd immunity, as they call it. Uh, we don't have a vaccine. And, and so the, the ability for this to quickly go through uh, a workplace, if you look at Cargill out, out west, um, you know, that's mm-hmm. what can happen is, uh, you know, this can very quickly go from a couple of people to a few hundred people. Uh, and that's what's happening in congregate settings like, um, like long-term care facilities. But don't forget, the more we open up things, the more we essentially create congregate settings and workplaces uh, in businesses, uh, you know, the reason we had to look at the stairs where there were 4,000 people using our stairs every day. I mean, that's a pretty, you know, I know not all at the same time, but it's not one or two or three people. It's large numbers of people gathering, and we're just not sure yet what that right number and right way to do it is. So this is still a very real crisis. And if you look at what's happening in our congregate settings, as we call them, because sometimes we fixate only on long-term care facilities, but we need to remember that it's long-term care, retirement homes, group homes, residential care facilities, homeless shelters. These are all these places where people gather together and have common elements. Uh, we still have a crisis there and, and are still diverting a lot of resources to manage those outbreaks. And uh, until we get sort of that situation a bit more under control as well, I think you're going to see this this thinking over the next few weeks about the next steps, but the action is still, uh, you know, as the Premier said yesterday and as the Prime Minister said, it's it's still a little ways away. But they're getting different messages here, and, and a lot of it's coming from, from the White House, of course, with Donald Trump, and it's a little frustrating. But And, and now you've got some of the states that are, as of this weekend, apparently going to start opening things up again, uh, and I, I think prematurely, but I mean, I, I'm sure you saw this, but I, I want our listeners to understand, too, that uh, because of all that talk that's going on south of the border about let's open this up again and let's let them people do this, and go, the Center for Disease Control has now just uh, upgraded their 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 uh, well their projection. It's not a prediction, but a projection. They were talking as you and I talked about a week or so ago, Paul. They said there could be a second wave maybe into next fall. Now they're saying it's probably going to happen in August. Uh, it's going to be that much sooner now because people are starting to go out and they're going to spread the virus again. It is. There will be transmission because, as you know, I go back to the point, we, we, we haven't developed an immunity and we haven't developed a vaccine. So there are very few ways that you can say, well, we've just we've stopped it. We, what we've done now is a really good job of it. The other thing that I would encourage people to do is make sure if they're giving if they're looking at comparisons that they actually dig into what those comparisons are in certain places right now. You can't even go in to get takeout food. You can't do certain things, and that's some of what's being loosened. And, of course, in Hamilton, you can. 
So uh, when people say everybody's opening up, well, sometimes what they're doing is actually reducing some even more restrictive pieces that, uh, that, that Hamilton and Ontario didn't have in place. And, and so it's been interesting. I, of course, scour what every community is doing. Uh, mm-hmm. We have you know, researchers and, and others that are looking at the same thing to gather the best advice. Uh, and, and, you know, it's sometimes interesting when I see places saying, well, we're opening it up or starting to reopen the economy. And I look at what they're doing. They're starting construction up again. Well, we still have a lot of essential construction happening in the province of Ontario. So there are certain things that we've kept open. And I know that's a little comfort to those who want to get out and enjoy, uh, you know, a trail somewhere or, or this or that. But, you know, we, we, we do need to do this in a way that, uh, that manages the cases as they go forward. It's not going to disappear. Uh, no one has told me that there's a way to open it up and not have new cases. It's, it's about how do we open up the economy? How do we get people back to enjoying some of the amenities in a way where we can manage uh, what will be continued cases of COVID, um, many of whom will get sick and recover, but you need to make sure that they don't spread that. And so what are the workplace rules that will be in place? Uh, what are the screening techniques that will be in place so that we can understand if someone is sick and then sick with COVID-19, that we can ensure that uh, there's no more spread and that the contacts those folks had uh, are also quickly isolated, much as what we did in the early stages of this pandemic. And with that in mind, uh, what's what's the, 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 the status going forward now? I mean, do we simply, is it steady as she goes? I mean, that seems to be the message we're getting from the Prime Minister and the Premier. And I, we had the mayor on the other day as well. And, and Mayor Fred was pretty much saying the same sort of thing. That, look, at, uh, you know, don't be fooled by this and don't get this false sense of optimism. I mean, I, you're right, the numbers are, are very encouraging. But, you know, the, the, those encouraging numbers are because we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. And if we stop doing that, uh, I'm afraid of what could happen here. Yeah, you know, the first message is nothing is changing in uh, in the immediacy. Uh, whether that immediacy is another three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, uh, I, I can't say, but uh, there's nothing changing in the immediacy. The other message, though, is one of um, aren't we glad that what we're doing is working? Uh, you do not have field hospitals being set up. You do not have, uh, you know, ships being brought in, military ships for medical purposes like they did in New York in order to provide medical care to an overwhelmed health system. Uh, you just don't see those types of things happening, and that's a good news story. And until we're really convinced that we're through through the piece where that surge could overwhelm systems um, and overwhelm the ability of us to do, you know, our daily work, uh, you know, that that's what we've got to wait for. And uh, how long we have to wait for, I think the encouraging piece is we, we've seen some other jurisdictions where they're in perhaps even a better shape uh, from a case perspective than, than Ontario and Hamilton. And, uh, you know, they're starting to contemplate things. So I think you can get a sense of the timing by looking around. But in Ontario and in Hamilton, uh, there is no change at, at this point. We're going to continue to monitor the information and make the changes when it's safe to do so. One of the other elements, I'm looking at all the, the factors that, that you've talked about a number of times, and so has Dr. Richardson, uh, and that is, first of all, testing, which, which is, I know is starting to expand just a little bit. And the other is tracking. In other words, for some people, do, do come up with a positive uh, diagnosis on this. Uh, who have you been around and that, that sort of thing. And uh, I, I know that that's part of the system. And these places that, as you say, may be a little bit ahead of us in situations like that, have already started that process. We're, we're, we're not up there yet, are we? I mean, we don't have the amount of testing we'd like to have, and we certainly aren't doing the tracking because of that. Yeah, I think those are those are those critical questions that have to be answered first. First, it's it's you know, it is the trajectory of cases. 
and and what's the you know how long a period of time you go with a certain uh, comfort in the number of cases before you start to take some next steps and then there are the other things you have to have in the background the wonderful news in a province like ontario and across the country to be honest but uh, but in ontario for sure is we have a very strong public health system that that understands how to do uh, all of this work and has been contact tracing for months uh, long before uh, we all got the shock of closing things down and everything else they were doing this in january and february and looking at these uh, these issues so but that has to be in place uh, and be ready to go and then obviously the testing abilities uh, need to be ramped up and, and and that's starting so i think once we see stability in testing once we see the ability and we know there's an ability in public health to do to do their work uh, those are all critical components to it and that's uh, you know as you say it's um, you don't have to be uh, a medical professional to read where people have been successful. It's, um, you know, quickly identify people who are sick, uh, isolate them uh, so that they can recover from the disease without infecting more people, trace who they had direct and close contact with, isolate them as well, and monitor them for symptoms. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's how you close things down. And similarly, we need to strengthen our, our congregate settings, our care facilities, so that when they do have outbreaks going forward, um, there aren't some of the same massive outbreaks we've seen. Uh, they really need to tighten up and, in certain cases, tighten up their infection control processes so that when there are cases, again, they are isolated quickly and, uh, and, and everyone else is protected. And that's what's been great about a few of these outbreaks is you see one case and then 14 days later, you see that removed from outbreak status. And isn't that wonderful? And I know there are some cases where things have, have escalated, but I'm really pleased to see the work that's obviously going on in many of these facilities to say, we know the probability is high that we will have a case, either from a staff person or from someone who lives with us, and we've got the protections in place to ensure that we can stop that outbreak as quickly as possible. And I, I think those are also those good news stories that I see uh, coming out as people take this very, very seriously. One of the other elements I know that you guys talk about with uh, the committee of the uh, Emergency Operations uh, Committee, Paul, uh, is those frontline workers. I mean, obviously there are the people in the healthcare field itself, but uh, first responders, paramedics, police, fire, things like that. Uh, the concern a lot of us have now is burnout. Uh, first of all, it's a very stressful job to begin with, even more stressful now because of the pandemic and the long hours, and, and let's face it, the danger of, of infection themselves. What are you hearing from, from those people? Uh, we do hear we do hear the stress. Uh, you know, I think uh, first and foremost, uh, those that are working in in care settings or in or in healthcare, but yeah. particularly care settings. You know, long term care facilities uh, eight months ago weren't exactly staffed to the hilt. I mean, there's there's challenges in long term care every day and in a normal day, and now you're seeing you know less staff in the home, increased needs, increased work um, that, that that's happening. You know, hospitals, certainly some parts of hospitals are, have reduced work, but there's other parts of the hospital that have had to ramp up. And, and people are, you know, when you have to care for those who are sick uh, with COVID, there's a whole host of things that have to happen. And they're also scared about their own health as, as frontline workers. Our paramedics, it's the same thing. You know, every call they go on now, uh, you know, because community transmission is real and has been real for a number of weeks, uh, they're preparing themselves for dealing with someone who might, have uh, another type of health issue, but may also uh, be COVID-19 positive. And, and the stress of that, on not just their work, their work is stressful every day, but it's the stress also of what that brings back into their own homes, <laughs> their own uh, health and well-being, but the health and well-being of their families. And, 
And, you know, I would say the extension of that. So I can talk about that because I have lots of interactions with those folks. But you know what? I, like everybody else, uh, I have to go and get groceries on occasion and things. And and I also see the stress in, in those folks that are delivering the essential services to keep this, this community going. And whether that's uh, checking us out at the grocery store uh, or doing some of the other jobs that are really important but are less talked about, our transit operators, things like that. Mm-hmm. There's stress all around because this is uh, this is scary. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's something to be taken very seriously. Uh, I get it that most people will, will get sick. It won't be pleasant, but they will recover. But, uh, you know, people do realize that there is no treatment for this that, um, that we know is, is hyper-effective and there is no cure. And so uh, for those folks that work every day in, in settings that deal with the public, uh, it's a huge stress. And the other piece is, is it's not going away. When we do open exactly. parks up, when we do have people back in restaurants, for frontline workers, uh, the, the threat and, and the, uh, the, the, the fear of this is, is not going to disappear. So this is a several-month thing, and we're putting lots of supports in place. I know at the city for our employees. And one of the things, Bill, I'd, I'd say uh, real kudos to our HR department is our employee uh, assistance program, which is available to our, our permanent employees, has been extended to every employee, contract employees, part-time employees, casual employees, all have access to professional support should they need it uh, to talk to somebody and to get some some um, some advice around how to cope. And I think those are the kinds of things that we all need to be thinking about to support exactly. those that do have some questions. Paul, uh, town hall, of course, virtual town hall tonight, and you'll hear that on CHML. and get more details about what's happening. Stay well, Paul. Thanks so much for this. We'll check in again in a few days. You bet. Stay safe, Bill. Thanks. You too. Paul Johnson, Director of Emergency Operations. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Our weekly feature now, and uh, this is obviously because of what's going on with the pandemic uh, and the news, almost daily news that we're getting from the Prime Minister and from the Premier about uh, government programs that are being put in place for those that are going to be, well, affected by what's going on vis-a-vis employment, salaries, and things of this nature. Uh, So we're always pleased to welcome Andrew Goldberg, employment lawyer and associate at Samfiro Tumarkin LLP, employment lawyers. uh, Employmentlawyer.ca, by the way, is the webpage you want to go to. Andrew, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm well, Bill. How are you doing? It's a nice day. I'm well. Day. I'm well. Yeah, we're surviving, getting through this. It's apparently winter outside again, so I'm, I'm happy to be here broadcasting from home again. Uh, I want to talk to you about something that we just touched on briefly last week, uh, right near the end of our segment, which I'm hearing an awful lot more about, and I'm sure you guys are t- at the, the law firm as well. And that's uh, people that are being asked to take a drop in pay. Uh, because of the employment situation and because of the economic situation, and uh, and maybe we could get into that in a little more detail right now because I'm starting. I, I well, there's the story of Major League Baseball is being told to do this, and of course these are guys that are making like 18 million bucks a year. Uh, I'm not really feeling too badly for them if they have to drop that down to about 14 million or whatever it's going to be. But for a lot of us that are in different wage brackets, I says uh, we're being asked to do this in many situations too. A lot of people that I've heard from over the last uh, week or so, as, as an employee how do you deal with something like that well again that's an excellent question it's something we touched on last time i I have a story to share with you first i'll get into some background about the situation you discussed um so when it comes to the established case law if the employer attempts to reduce the pay of an employee that employee can likely treat their employment as being terminated. An employer does not have the right to reduce someone's salary without their agreement. 
So if that happens, many employees that are having their pay reduced, they can treat their employment as being constructively dismissed. They can treat that as a termination. They can pursue a severance package. That said, with the times that we're facing, many employees do not want to go down that road. A lot of employees would prefer to just get paid 75% of their wages or 80% of their wages than, you know, pursue a claim against their employer for severance. Times are uncertain. It's an understandable position to be in. But that being said, as an employee, you do want to make sure you do certain things. You want to make sure that um, the pay reduction is not just loosely put out there. Oh, you know, we're going to be reducing your pay uh, indefinitely until things improve. You know, what what does that mean? What do, what does that mean when things improve? Does that mean when people are back outside? Does that mean when everyone's back at work? Does that mean when the revenues of the company have jumped back up? That's entirely unclear. So if you're an employee and you're, it's put to you that your pay is going to be reduced, you want to make sure that certain terms are in place so you understand the length of the reduction and uh, the impact of the reduction. So that's going to be very important. So do you, do you go to the extent of saying, okay, I need a, for lack of a better expression, a contract? And we, in other words, I want my boss, if this is going to happen to us, in the hypothetical here, uh, to spell out exactly what the terms are going to be? I mean, that would be ideal to have something clear-cut in writing um, that that discusses, you know, it, it's not always going to be easy to put a finite date for an employer to say, okay, by May 15th, your pay will return. Even if it says something along the lines of <clears throat> that the employee agrees to the reduction and on May 15th, the parties will reassess at that point, that could be reasonable. Uh, just something in writing to structure you know, the terms and conditions of which the reduction is going to be agreed upon. Sometimes uh, employees can agree to defer the money to a later point. So maybe the employer says, I'm going to cut your pay 25% now, but you know, by mid-2021, we will pay you back or something like that. It's really going to be situational. Um, another thing to keep in mind, too, is that you know, these pay cuts, for them to be at least somewhat justified by the employer, they have to be tied to some kind of reason uh, for which the pay cut has to take place. So if the, if the company is slow, then the employer has to take the position that times are slow and we're not making money, yada, yada, yada. But, you know, it's our position that, okay, if you're going to agree to a pay cut, let's say 20% pay cut, then you should also be working 20% less days. So if you're going to take a one-fifth pay cut, then maybe you should be also working four or five days a week. I'm sorry, four out of five days per week as well. Mm-hmm. If there's enough work to do five days per work, then arguably the pay cuts may be not necessary, right? So that's also something to look at. Um, Ver- go ahead. Sorry. No, no, you go, you go ahead. I was going to say the variation on that theme, and I know we just briefly touched on this, is, is unpaid days, uh, which uh, some employers have, are used as uh, in, the, in the recession back in 2009. Uh, that's, uh, that's what a lot of people did in situations like that. And, and the rationale, uh, I'm sure you've heard this a lot now, Andrew, in the last couple of weeks, is that, look it, uh, instead of laying five people off, we're going to have everybody work five, six days, whatever it might be, unpaid. And that way we can keep everybody here. And that sounds reasonable, but does it always work out that way? I mean, it, it, it's difficult to do. Again, if you, you should never be working uh, unpaid days. You don't have an obligation to work unpaid days. There is a government program, like a work-sharing program, that companies can apply for, mm-hmm. where pretty much similar jobs are grouped together. And if you're going to be working four or five days because now jobs are being shared, then you can get EI for the fifth day that you're not working, right? So that would be more of a practical solution than just not paying someone at all. 
So that's something that employers should look into, whether they can apply for those work-sharing programs. Um, I did want to share a story with you, if you don't mind, because it is yeah, please. very... So to, to, to kind of set up the story, I'm sure most of your listeners know, if you're entitled to severance, severance is based on a notice period. So the longer you work at a company, the older you are, the more senior your position, the more severance you're going to get. And that's calculated in terms of months. So are you entitled to six-month severance, 12-month severance, 18-month severance, what have you, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So a lot of what we do at the firm is people come to us and they say, oh, my employer offered me a six-month package. What do you think about this? We take a look at it and we say, no, 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 you should be getting 14 months. And then, you know, we pursue litigation against the employer to get a fair severance package. So what I've seen this week, which was shocking, was I had an individual, and I'm not going to reveal any details at this time, but it's, it's not really relevant, but... I had an individual come to me, and that individual came to me, and they said, listen, in March, my employer came to me and said that we need to take 25% pay reductions because times are dire, um, and we're losing money, and uh, for for the time, and it's it's a large company, so, you know, the odds of it going under are not high, so they said, you know, in order to keep everyone actively employed, and we're going to need to give you a temporary pay reduction of 25%. So the employee, before speaking to me, agrees. They say, okay, I'll, I'll take a temporary pay reduction if it means people can stay actively employed. Take the one for the team, says, right? Pardon me? I said, just, I'm going to take one for the team. I'll take it. Hey, I'm going to take one for the team. It appears lots of people are doing this, So, and I like my job. And, you know, ideally this person would have had a chance to speak to me first so we could uh, approach that and, and, again, like we discussed a few mm-hmm. minutes ago, giving a contract and the terms or whatever. But it did say very clearly that it would be temporary and it was to keep people actively employed. So the pay reduction took effect, let's say, April 10th. So on April 10th, the pay went down to to 75%. And then on April 13th, the employee was fired. And when the employee was fired on a without cause basis, the employer offered the employee a severance package. And that severance package was based on... 75% of the wages. So the employer's taking the position that, oh, because you agree to this pay cut, we're now paying you a severance that's only based on your 75% of wages. So if that employee was entitled to 12 months pay, the employer's saying, okay, fine, yeah, we'll give you 12 months pay, but at a 75% of your earnings, Um, which was shocking because the only reason the employee agreed to this at all was to keep people actively employed. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the employee did not agree to this, to get fired and to get a subpar severance package. So it really shows that there are employers out there really trying to take advantage of the situation in ways that are just entirely unreasonable and, quite frankly, just shocking to us. In, in a scenario like that, does the, is there any grounds here to go back and say, wait just a second here? I mean, obviously there's going to have to be, I would think, some sort of a, a, a disagreement here. and There's going to be well, possible litigation, I guess, in a situation like that. Of course. I mean, we think that's a, a ridiculous um, position to take if the employer had if the employer and the employee agreed on a pay reduction that was entirely not tied to the COVID pandemic it was just that listen you know you're going to work less days going forward we're going to pay you less and that's just the terms of your contract forever maybe that would be an argument maybe but you know the employer has an obligation to perform its contractual duties in good faith and when the employer proposed this pay reduction it said Number one, that it was temporary, and number two, it was to keep people actively employed. 
So obviously neither of those things happened. It wasn't temporary because they just fired my guy after reducing the pay. And number two, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't to keep people actively employed because they fired him, right? So they didn't keep their end of the bargain. It was an entirely bad faith proposition to attempt to get this person to agree to a reduced salary just to fire them and give them some kind of subpar, absolutely inadequate severance package. So definitely, I think, not only is there going to be recourse to get you know the full severance entitlement based on the full pay, but there could be some bad faith damages also awarded against an employer in that situation for kind of acting in the manner it did it, um, by kind of facetiously leading this person on to, to take an agreement when um, they had no intention of satisfying the terms being keeping these people employed, right? Um, but which kind of leads to the point where it's very, very, very critical that if you do receive a pay reduction, you want to make the terms clear. So if I was an employee, one of the things that I would make very clear is that, okay, you know, I'll take this pay reduction, but in the event that I am terminated, you have to agree to pay me my severance based on my 100% pay. So there are lots of things that you as an employee should go back and make sure are in writing before you ever agree to any kind of reduction or else you're going to face situations like this. You're going to run into situations, and I'm sure you've seen this with some of your clients, uh, that uh, say, look, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to rock the boat here. I mean, I'll, I'll just agree to this because I don't want to get my, my, my employer angry at me. I mean, they might think less of me. I might, you know, be putting my head on the chopping block if I do this. But from what you're telling me, no matter what kind of a relationship you have with your employer in situations like this, and these are obviously extraordinary situations, uh, this is a this is a business transaction, and and you need to get professional help. Le- in this case, legal, uh, I, I would think, advice before you actually move ahead with any of these things. Uh, agreed. I mean, it, it's important now more than ever. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, I take your point uh, that I think it's important to keep in mind, and people often forget, is an employer can fire anyone at any time without cause. Mm-hmm. The only times that they can't really fire someone is if it's discriminatory. Or maybe that person filed a harassment complaint and the termination was a reprisal for the harassment complaint. But, you know, other than that, an employer doesn't need a reason to fire someone. They can do it at any time. The only um, thing to keep in mind is if they do fire someone without cause, they have to pay that person a severance package. So the employment relationship is never secure at any time you can be let go. So people do have to keep that in mind. It's not like, you know, if you rock the boat, Yes, okay, you may be more likely to be fired. It's certainly possible. And you as an individual, you'll be much closer to your work situation than I will be as a lawyer who knows nothing about, you know, the dynamics of the relationships at your office. But you do have to keep in mind that there's nothing you can really do to ensure with any degree of certainty that you won't be let go. So you do have to do the things you need to do to protect yourself. And I mean, if you, if you draft the letters to the employer in the right way, um, it's not necessarily going to be perceived as rocking the boat. You can do it in a manner where it's just, you know, I, I'm just, as you can imagine, I'm looking out for myself. These are, are crazy times. Things are extremely precarious in terms of my financial situation. So I just want to clarify a few things. You don't have to come guns blazing against the employer and be like, how dare you? We want this. We want that. You know, it's all about being delicate with the approach. But, you know, at all times, you should be doing what you need to do to preserve your rights in case something does happen down the line, which is very possible right now uh, in light of everything going on. 
Uh, an email from one of our listeners. Uh, this is Brett. It's kind of a long, convoluted email, but I think it's based on what you were saying just a couple of minutes ago. The essence of what Brad is asking here, uh, he's telling me he works in a grocery store, and as we know, of course, they actually got a, a, an increase in their in their wage uh, when this whole thing started. Uh, a number of employees in some of these grocery stores actually, uh, so they're making more than they usually do, more than minimum wage. But he says now he's hearing that there could be layoffs. Uh, if that happens. Would his severance package be based on his new salary or what he was making before this? I mean, it, it, it really depends on the terms of the pay increase, right? If, if it did, if the pay increase was specifically tied to a finite period, if it said, okay, we're going to give you the pay increase from March 15th to May 15th, then the odds are that um, if that person was fired, then the severance would be based on their original pay, maybe at best. Uh, you could probably argue, okay, since that increased pay was agreed upon till May 15th, the initial part of the severance can be based on the increased pay, and then for the, the balance of the severance uh, portion, so if your severance is worth 12 months, but they agree to two months of an increased pay, I suppose it's possible that for the first two of the 12 months of your severance, you get that increased pay, and for the remaining 10 months, you revert back to your normal pay, right? Because um, that would, you know, you can't have it both ways. If, if, if you're trying to argue that your sever- if they cut your pay, your pay shouldn't be based on a pay cut. Your severance yeah. should be based on a pay cut. By the same token, if they increase your pay, um, there's probably a decent argument that so long as that was perceived to be temporary, that your total severance package will not be on the increased pay. But it, it is situational. I would have to review kind of the communication that went on uh, in that context. I'm just trying to do this off the top of my head. I think I recall when that story was announced, I guess it was about six, eight weeks ago now, uh, I believe the, the the employer said this was going to be on a bonus situation, so that wouldn't really impact, quote-unquote, salary, would it? Uh, if it was a bonus, then it really depends on the language of the proposed bonus. I mean, the kind of the default rule in Ontario, at least, is if, you're in, if you receive bonuses, then you're entitled to the bonus payments over the severance period. So, for example, okay. if you received a $20,000 bonus for the last five years and your severance period is 12 months, you get 12 months pay, then the default is pretty much then you get a 12-month bonus payment. You get that twenty grand as well. But if the, for, the, for your severance, your severance would be your regular pay for 12 months plus a $20,000 bonus, right? Mm-hmm. But the employer can create language in a bonus plan that specifically outs that right. So they can put language in the bonus plan that says, you know, in the event that you're terminated without cause, you will not be entitled to any bonus period, uh, bonus payment over the severance period. So it really depends on the language that's included in uh, kind of whatever document they're using to unveil and, and dictate the terms of the bonus. Just about out of time, but there is one other question I wanted to bring up here. It's actually going to start happening, I would think. Uh, if people have uh, been laid off uh, for whatever reason, obviously because of the pandemic here, uh, when they have to start calling them back or when they do that, uh, what's the expectation? If you are a senior employee, uh, is, is your expectation that you're going to be one of the first people call back, or is that up to the discretion of the employer? Well, I mean, that's kind of a loaded question. There's a lot going on there, but if assuming the layoff was legitimate in the first place, which mm-hmm. a lot of them aren't, we've t- talked on the show yeah. many times that the layoff could be a termination, assuming it was legitimate and people are getting called back, the expectation would be that the employer is making sound, rational business decisions as to why certain people are being recalled. If there are certain areas of the business that are kind of more critical than others, 
and that are more um, kind of fundamental to the revenue streams or the operations generally, you'd expect the recall decisions to be based on that. And then if they're, if it's kind of equal across the board, you know, everyone's equally valuable in a certain group, then you'd expect that people would be recalled based on their seniority, based on their length of service, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, otherwise you face situations where uh, an employer could be faced with like a discrimination claim. If an employer has a group of 20 employees in a certain department, uh, five of which are 60 and older and 50 are, 15 of the employees are in their 40s or younger than 40 and they recall all the guys that are younger than 40 and they leave the five, six-year-olds at home, then, then those individuals could argue that, that that was discriminatory, the older workers. They could be like, why are we all sitting at home when the younger guys are coming back? And that could be also a reasonable excuse for those individuals, the five older workers, not to come back at all. If they don't feel comfortable, if they say, like, listen, you clearly discriminated against me on the basis of age, then I don't feel comfortable coming back. I think you've betrayed the trust that I have with the company. And that could open the door for uh, a constructive dismissal uh, as well, where that those individuals could pursue their severance as well. So, I mean, it's all going to be very situational. It's hard to give generic overriding kind of solutions to these problems or answers. Everything is going to be case specific, but if anyone has any concerns, um, it's definitely something that should be discussed before making whatever decision it is that you're going to make. Well, uh, you can call Andrew and he can talk to you about this. Uh, uh, employmentlawyer.ca, by the way, is the web page for this. Andrew Goldberg, uh, Employment Lawyer and Associate at Sanfiro to Mark and LLP. Always uh, uh, insightful, Andrew. Thanks so much for this. Uh, stay well. We'll talk again next week. Yes, for sure. I'm happy to be on and you stay well and to all your listeners. I hope they're all well, too. So let's keep trucking and, and do what we need to do. Thanks again, Andrew. Take care. Andrew Bye-bye. Goldberg. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now I want to talk about enforcement of, of, of some of the restrictions, some of the rules that have been put in place, some of them municipal, some of them provincial because of the pandemic. And uh, who is getting tickets and who is being charged in situations like this has been very controversial. We talked to Paul Johnson about that in the first part of the program and uh, got some details about that. And uh, just to kind of clarify what's happening and and who's being targeted in situations like this uh claire bodkin talked about this claire of course is with the hamilton social medicine response team and this this is how she explained it most hamiltonians have heard that there were people ticketed on the golf course for playing golf that reason why is very very different than a person who doesn't have a home um and who isn't able to practice physical distancing because they don't have any home to be in or anywhere to go Having said that, we are told that there are still people that are being ticketed in that very circumstance, homeless people uh, on the street. Uh, we've seen examples of that. I know the spectators done some reporting on this, and we've heard anecdotally from some people that have been in situations like this. So should people, bylaw, police, whatever, be ticketing these sorts of people as well? Well, it's happening. I want to bring uh, Lisa Nussie into the conversation of Keep Six, the Hamilton Harm Reduction Action Team. Uh, Lisa, thank you for joining us. Glad you could be with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. You know, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when these these uh, these rules were set up, and we were told at that time that this is not going to happen. We're not going to, you know, look at people like this that are in dire circumstances to begin with, uh, exacerbated by this pandemic. But it seems to be happening nonetheless. Yeah. Well, I think we we put to, we had a meeting with the police um, on April seventh, shortly after 
the ticketing, there was a bit of a blitz on the pandemic measures, um, mm-hmm. ticketing for, around those. And so we were really concerned because some of our people who were never going to be able to pay these tickets were, were being ticketed. And, and um, I've described it a little bit as kind of adding insult to injury, you know, like everybody's being told to stay home and shelter in place and social distance and physical distance. And if you don't have the infrastructure to do that, it's very difficult. So then when on top of that, you start getting $750 tickets, which are twice your income, really, like in a month, then then it, it just sort of, it's a little bit difficult to swallow. And so we did, we proactively tried to speak with the, we did speak with the police and they were receptive to our conversation, but also said that they their hands were sort of tied in that they didn't, that they were, you know, it was their duty to enforce the law, that they had some discretion that they could use, but that they really, you know, they couldn't really turn the other way. And so we also talked on that conversation and we've talked in many other circumstances around how uh, physically distancing in a shelter is very difficult because you're sleeping closer than two meters together. People are working really hard to make those make improvements in those conditions to reduce the spread of the of the infection, but that nonetheless people who are sheltering in the same shelter are in fact should be considered part of the same household. And so that was actually a tactic that we took to give the police and bylaw some some structure around which they could could not could decide not to ticket people because if people are living in the same household, for instance, if I'm out walking with my family, I'm not required to physically distance from them That's because right. when I'm in my living room, that my daughter is sitting on my lap, you know. And so we wanted to have that uh, consideration extended to folks who were living in shelters, and that was our hope was that what we could do is get some agreement from um, city and and the police around that definition of household. And is that not happening? Well, it is. We our conversation. So, just to be clear, there was a, a really a big blitz all across the country around ticketing um, under these emergency measures act, the seven hundred fifty dollars tickets for not for being in groups of more than five, and then the bylaw came into place around physical distancing. Um, and so, early in April, there was quite a few tickets across the country around that, and then those tickets fell off. And, but we, what we are hoping to do is be proactive about it and say, please just don't ticket people who are living in shelters so that we don't have to deal with it through the court system. We don't want to fight it after the fact. If we can all agree up front that these folks are living in the same household, then, then we don't have this issue of $750 tickets on people's records, which then come to compound other, pre- other times when they're pre- presenting at court or whatever. You know what I mean? And so, unfortunately, we're, we weren't able to, you know, and I would, I, would, um, I would invite you to let the police speak for themselves directly, obviously, but uh, we had a meeting yesterday um, where we were hoping we could come to that agreement, and unfortunately, we weren't able to get that, that sort of proactive consensus around people living in shelter, constituting people living in one household. Well, well because there were different circumstances at play here. Uh, for those that know something about this, there are the shelters, there are people that are homeless and, and hopefully can find a place to sleep. But as you know, Lisa, there are other people in this community that are living in, well, we used to call them second-level lodging homes, uh, and they may actually have an address, but basically they're told, okay, go out, you can't stay here all day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, you know, they, uh, some of them are on medications and, and the staff are supposed to give them the medication and, and feed them breakfast at whatever the case might be. And basically they say, come back at next mealtime. Where are they supposed to go? 
Right. So I, I, I don't want to like sort of step out of my area of No, I understand that, but I'm just saying, you know, that's, yeah, it's, sure. it's through no that's, fault of theirs. Yeah, you know. that has been one of the things that we've really been working hard on and as Keeping Six in partnership with Hamsmart and, and other groups in the city yeah. to say, you know, people need places to go. There's issues around there's no washrooms, there's nowhere for people to wash their hands, there's actually nowhere for people to shower or to launder their clothes. So these are real sort of basic needs issues that aren't being met in the name of implementing measures to protect public health. And so I think our messaging has really been from the beginning that people need to be afforded the infrastructure to implement these public health measures. And in the absence of that, we can't start punishing people for not doing it. That's, that's really our that's really our one message. And our statement around around the households and shelters, and, and they may, it may in fact apply to the circumstances you're talking about, we just sort of wanted to bite off as much as we could chew, yeah. that people should be considered part of the same household and afforded the same, um, the same opportunities and rights as other folks. Well, to that end, we talked, uh, I guess it was a week or so ago, about uh, St. Patrick's Church opening their doors to try to help mm-hmm. some of those. Uh, and at the time, we said, boy, I hope other facilities and institutions can take them up on that. Has is, is any of that happened? Yeah, so there are, some, I, there, are some, there are some conversations going on, and there are some people in the community who have stepped forward, and there's still opportunity for more people to step forward. There's, there's, we've sort of developed a system in partnership with St. Pat's and the Hemsmart physicians developed a, a, a protocol around infection control to sort of put at ease some people's fears around, around the issue of, of, um, of having groups of people were implementing physical distancing protocols in those in the St. Pat Center. And we've also got a big roster of volunteers of really well, you know, healthy young people um, who want to participate and volunteer to provide services to people who aren't able to access them at the moment. Well, so because I, we have yeah, to understand who, the, you know, the people that are there are by definition have their own set of problems anyway. I mean, some of them, of course, may be dealing with some addiction. Some of them may be dealing with, with some mental health issues. Uh, I'm 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 not saying hey let's have two sets of rules. I understand where the authorities are coming from in situations such as this, but at the same time, you got to understand who it is that you're dealing with. That's a person, and that person has has their own challenges. I think that's exactly like I think you're highlighting what's really sort of been again at the core of our messaging, which is that what what we need to keep our eyes on the prize here, which is the public health concerns. Yeah. And so. The, the way public health plays out in one setting isn't necessarily the way it's going to play out in another setting. And so those rules may, in fact, need to be modified or, or adjusted in order to continue to protect people's health, right? So I don't think it's not about asking for a special exception to rules. It's about maintaining the opportunity for people to protect themselves and to protect each other from the spread of the disease. And that's really all our focus has been on throughout this entire pandemic. And so you're right, the way the rules apply in, let's say, Westdale or Ancaster may not be the same as they apply in the downtown core in the sense that you might not be use the same application of rules in order to protect the public. I'm saying the same thing you're saying, just with different words. No, it's true, but because every circumstance is different. I mean, if I wantonly decide I'm going to go play golf at Shadok this afternoon, I won't, by the way, uh, you know, shame on me. And if if the bylaw people see me, bingo, I'm going to get nailed with a ticket, as I should, anybody else should, because the bylaw says you're not supposed to do that. But this is a a different circumstance, and and you're right. I mean, it's the application of the law. And I I understand that we're getting into intricacies here, and Mm -hmm. people are going to say, come on, it should 
be one size fits all, and I'm not necessarily sure you can do that. I think that's the point. One size doesn't fit all in these circumstances. Yeah. Because the, the size is not the same in all in all places, right? And in fact, the $750 ticket for you to go golfing might actually work as a deterrent. But for folks for whom that represents two, two times their income, it, it you might as well find me, um, you know, Anyway, two times my income. I won't tell you what two times my income. <laughs> Don't go there. Don't go there. Lisa, uh, listen, I, I'm glad that, uh, that other folks are starting to take up what St. Pat's is doing. I'm hoping that uh, that you can get a continuation of that. Uh, please stay in touch with us and keep us posted as to how this is rolling out in the next little while, won't you? Yeah, we really appreciate you bringing the issue to the, to the forefront. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care, Lisa. Stay well. Bye. Lisa Nussie from Keeping Six, the Hamilton Harm Reduction Action Team. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.